Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And as every week, I scour the globe. Of course, now we went down to Latin America to find this man. He agreed to come on the show. He's been spoken about from other great DJs. I've spoken about him as well as being an important piece to the music pie of house and disco and dance music. He, um, he was responsible for a hell of a lot of remixes. He also took over for another famous DJ at the Better Days New York City Disco in Midtown Manhattan. But I'm going to let him tell you all about that. He's a very talented brother. I'd like to welcome to True House Stories, Mr. Bruce Forrest. Bruce, how are you, my man? You okay? Very good. You okay? I'd love to be here. Thank you for coming on. I'm glad we were able to get you. Of course, before we start, you know, everybody knows that we're talking Samuel through to Costa Rica, through. He's off grid, but he came on grid for this. He came on grid. We got him. We got him with satellite television and everything. He's, he's there. How are you guys doing? How are you and Mitzi doing down there? We're fine. Uh, we're in the middle. We just started the rainy season, so it rains every day. Um, it starts about 5, 6 o'clock. It rains all night, and then usually in the morning, it's, it's beautiful. And then when the rainy season ends around Thanksgiving, it's beautiful, 90 degrees, and sunny every day. So it's a very interesting place to live, great medical care. The people are really, really nice. Um, no pol political arguments going on. Everybody's very happy to be here. Um, a lot of American expats come down here because the medical care is so good and because it's actually quite inexpensive to live here. Um, it's a fraction of what, what it would cost in the United States to live very well. So we love it here. So let me ask you for a man who came from Forest Hills, Queens, to this. Now, you know what I'm saying? Because you walk out of your apartment building or house in the area. I know Forest Hills. I grew up not far from there in South Ozone Park, which was near the airport. So I would come out up there, Lemon Tree Discos. I, I even played at the Stratton. On Orton Street. I know I it well. played at the Stratton. <laughs> I, I know the Stratton, too. Yeah, so you remember, okay, so you could walk down, get a slice of pizza or have Cuban food and yeah. basically, or jump on the F train and be in Manhattan in 30 minutes. 30 minutes, it was easy. What's it like now being remote in the middle of the jungle, as they call it, the jungle? It's, it's well, I lived in Forest Hills Gardens, which wasn't quite as, as uh, apartment housey. It, it was basically big Tudor mansions, my father was a surgeon. And it was nice, but it, was, it wasn't isolated. My friends and I, you know, we rode our bicycles to each other's houses and things like that. Um, uh, after that, let's see, I guess the first thing I did is my parents sent me to boarding schools, very snooty boarding schools, one in Massachusetts, one in, uh, excuse me, one in Connecticut and one in New York State. I got kicked out of both of them. Um, the first one was called Chodler's Mary Hall, very famous. I aced all the tests. They were very happy to have me. But then uh, my roommate, who was actually the son of a very important uh, general in Vietnam, 
found out that I had a carton of cigarettes. And so he went off and ran and told the dean, and they all came into my room and searched it, and they found an unopened carton of Tarrington cigarettes. And the rule was, boys at choke do not smoke. It's not you can't smoke at choke. If you smoke, you can't be a boy at choke. So they took me right to the dean's office, handed me a telephone, and said, call your parents, tell them to come and get you. That wasn't a great phone call. They came and got me, and uh, I finished off the year at some school in New York City. And then for the next year, I interviewed and went to a school called Millbrook. Um, Millbrook, you may have heard of because it was right next door to Timothy Leary's estate. And he used to come on to the campus all the time and get guys and say, come on, you know, you want to ride my horses, this and that. And, of course, he gave them all acid. And so Millbrook got known as the place where Timothy Leary did LSD experiments. Um, I got thrown out of there um, because during Thanksgiving, they searched all the rooms. And at the very back of one of my drawers were three pot seats. And so when I came back from Thanksgiving, my door had been padlocked shut. And it says, see the dean. So I go into the dean, and he's, there's a whole line of guys who have to see him. And I come in, and he goes, oh, Mr. Forrest. He says, our drug dealer. I go, excuse me? And he takes out this big manila envelope and dumps it, dumps it on his desk and out drop three pot seeds. And he goes, what are these? I go, seeds? He goes, they're marijuana seeds. And he says, he says, you were going to plant these and become a dealer, weren't you? I go, we live in upstate New York. There's three feet of snow on the ground. I'm not going to throw anything here. And he says, doesn't matter. You're out. Another phone call to my parents. Come get, my, come get your son. Come get your son. <laughs> and so at that time, they kind of took the hint and they put me into Hillcrest Public School. Oh, yeah. In, in Hollis, Queens. The first school in the United States with metal detectors. And it was by far mostly people of color. I got along with, with everyone great. I loved the school. It was fun. It was really easy. I was going to say, the schools you were going to, the curriculum was super high. It was very hard, but I, I had no problem. Bill Chris is like walking into like, are you kidding me? We did this six years ago. When you yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. And um, it, it was like so easy. I, 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 the only reason I, I would usually walk in, go through the metal detectors, get checked out, and then walk out the fire escape and come back the next day. And I still graduated with honors and stuff like that. I never went to my prom. I never went to my graduation. And then I decided to go to, and this actually all leads up to DJ. So there's an interesting story here. Um, I then went to the University of Miami. And the only thing I did down there was get amazing suntan and do lots and lots of quaaludes. That was, that was what we did at the University of Miami. This is before the quaaludes. Doesn't quaaludes like, like slow you down? No, no, no. Quaaludes, I know quaaludes is like, they were always downers. Like, but go no. ahead. Quaaludes were known as a hypnotic, and they were invented originally for people who were having uh, problems in the bedroom, couples. And 
And it was much closer to ecstasy than, than, than a downer. And it was a hypnotic. It was not addictive. Um, it was wonderful. I could only take a quarter of one or I'd fall asleep. Right. And, see, see, that's what I'm saying. That's a, you, if you took a full one, everybody knew they'd be like, not yeah, enough. You, you, yeah, but they, but they were wonderful. <laughs> and so that's, that's pretty much what I did at Miami. And then after two years there, I said, look, I'm supposed to be going, I, you know, I grew up, my father's a surgeon, my mother was a psychiatrist. I was born to be a doctor. I mean, they have baby pictures of me with a little white coat and a mirror on my forehead and things like Dr. that. Dr. Forrest. Dr. Forrest. And, and, and actually, my first job ever, you'll, you'll probably like this, my first job ever, most kids there, either they work for McDonald's or a pizzeria or they delivered. I was a phlebotomist. I first started in the chem lab, and then they taught me how to draw blood. So I'm 14 years old. Now, I'm only five foot seven right now. When I was 14 years old, I didn't get to five feet until I was 16 years old in college. So I was about four foot ten. And my white, and my white coat dragged on the ground behind me. So I'd walk into the room and I'd go, you know, Jones, and he'd go, and I'd, I'd sit, you know, I'd take him into the phlebotomy room and I'd sit him down and I'd put, which arm do you want? And I'd put it down and I'd start tapping and he goes, what are you, are you someone's kid? I said, no, I'm your phlebotomist. He goes, you're going to draw my blood? I said, yeah. He, <laughs> says, he says, how old are you? I said, 14. He says, you're going to draw my blood. I said, yeah, I'm actually really good at it. And he goes, I'd like to see a nurse. So a nurse comes in. He said, yeah, this is Bruce Forrest. He's the son of one of our surgeons. And he happens to be the best phlebotomist in the hospital. She said, but he's a kid. She says, trust him, he's okay. And I actually was a really good phlebotomist. Um, and I eventually got bored of sticking needles in people all day. And so they moved me up to the cystoscopy room, which is where men end up when their prostates get bit. And they want to have a look. And so my day was basically taking patients down from the floor, putting them on the cysto table, washing the affected area, whether it was a man or a woman. Now, again, I was so short, I didn't need like a stool to stand on or anything like that. I was right at cross level. So, you know, I'm cleaning out everything. And then my father, who was a urologist or the other urologist at the hospital, would come in and do his work. And then I would make sure the patient got taken back to the room. And then after a year of that, um, after, you know, after school and stuff, uh, I got moved up into the operating room. And I became an operating room technician. You ever watch a TV show where two doctors are, have their arms deep inside a body, but there's always someone right next to them handing them the instruments. Apple. That, that, that was me. That's, that's, an, that's an OR technician. So I became an OR technician. And I was really good at it. I was, I was very short, but I was really good at it. I needed to have a stool so I could be the same. That for me would have killed me, brother. I would have been like, I couldn't do it with the blood open. Oh, God. Um, it, it didn't bother me. The only surgery I wouldn't do is eye surgery because that really freaked me out. And the, my favorite rotation was obstetrics because you were doing cesarean sections and deliveries all day. But I did that for years and years and years, and I actually got certified you're supposed to be 18 to be certified. I was certified at 50. 
Yeah, I've got to remember, this is like in the early 70s. So I was going to say, worlds were, worlds were a little different back then. Um, so I became an operating room technician, eventually a certified operating room technician. And nobody cared about my height because the doctors knew I was good. And the patients were asleep. So, question anything? Nobody's going to question Nobody's going to question anything. Nobody's going to question me. What was interesting is the hospital that I worked at was one of the first hospitals in the world to do transsexual surgery. Which one was so, this? Transsexual. It's called Boulevard Hospital in, in Astoria, Queens. And they had a doctor there named Dr. Granato, and he was doing male-to-female transsexual surgery, and I would assist at many of them. And you don't want to know how it's done because it will ruin your lunch for the next six weeks. And it, I, I watched it, saw it. I saw every possible surgery there was. Uh, I used to do a lot of orthopedics and so on and so forth. Anyway, so I had this skill. Now, my parents wanted me to quit um, University of Miami because they knew I just wasn't getting anything done except this amazing tan I had, which I no longer do. Um, and they decided they were going to send me to St. John's University. And I had just graduated high school when I was just 16. And I had skipped a grade earlier. And so I was just 16, and I went to St. John's, and I said, now, there's a cross on every wall. Um, I'm Jewish. They want me to pray with them, and I'm not into this. No, I'm not going back to St. John's. This was after one day. And we were sitting at the dining table, and at my, in my family, dining was, I wore a coat and tie, and we sat at a very fancy table, and we, had, we had servers and maids. Every, every night? Every night? Every, every night. You had to get dressed up like you were going out on a Sunday best part, like a... Like well, you know, I didn't have to wear a black tie or anything, but I did have to wear a coat and tie. And my father sat at the head, my mother sat at the end, my sister sat on one side, and I sat on the other. And the only night that was different was Wednesday, because my dad had board meetings then, so we had to eat at 4.30, which made, which made me laugh very, a lot when I eventually got down to Florida, and I realized that 4.30 is when people used to go and go into restaurants where they, if they ate before 4.30, they got free soup. So... Anyway, so I said, I'm not going back to St. John's. And they go, well, you have to go back to St. John's. I said, no, I don't. I said, I'm not going back to St. John's. Now, my girlfriend at that time was going to Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton, who, uh, let's see, who, who can I tell you that, that went there that you would know? Um, uh, oh, I just spoke to her. Was it Monica Lynch? Went to, went to Binghamton, and a couple of other people went to Binghamton, and it was a tough school. Oh yeah, and I, 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 but my girlfriend was up there, and so that was the only place I could go. So I got on a bus and I went to Binghamton, and I started at at SUNY Binghamton. I applied, you know, pre med, um, school business, uh, school school of medicine, and um, was doing that all day. And then I was doing the three to eleven shift at Binghamton General Hospital to pay my rent. You know, I had to earn some money. I, I had taken my parents and said, I want nothing more to do with you. I eventually, we eventually made up, but 
for years, I didn't talk to them or anything. So I had to make my own money. So I worked as an operating room technician in Binghamton. And um, what happened is after about two years of that, I graduated. And at the same time, I knew that what was going to come up was medical school and more open bodies. Meanwhile, in the operating room, all I saw was open bodies, and it started to get to me. It really did. So I was at the student union one day, and I was just looking on the, on the, on the board, and it said, needed. Um, electrician does not need to be certified. Also, someone with experience in theater lighting management. And I said, I will take that. So I went and applied to the local disco. It was called the Power and Light Company. And it was owned by a family called the Hanleys. And the oldest member of the Hanleys was a guy named Brian Hanley. And he was the head DJ there. And his assistant, who was the second DJ, was a brilliant photographer and still my friend named Fred Coffey. And I was like, God, this music is absolute crap. What is this? Because I was a Grateful Deadhead, you know, I, I would I would break I would break the whole thing by putting on an Almond Brothers record. Like, oh no, take that off! It's got to be Dark Star, Dark Star again. And eventually, I started. You know, I was into rock and, and into real progressive music. And here I am working at a disco. So I'm in climbing gear up in the up in the rigging, changing cells. And Fred, we had an actual we had an RLA system there because. Brian was smart enough to know that he wanted to have a really good system. So, you know, we had a Richard Long system there and it was, it was really good. And he was practicing and he was like mixing it from beautiful bend into voyage into a mont into tantra and stuff like that. And I'm like, Oh God, this stuff is awful. And but I really liked the way that he's blending one record seamlessly into another. I said, that's kind of cool. So when I was done, I lowered myself in. I went in the DJ booth. I said, you mind if I watch for a minute? He said, yeah. And so he's, he's, you know, it's all vinyl. He would mix one in and he'd be listening on the headphone. I said, what's in the headphone? He said, that's the other record. So I can tell that I'm on beat with the two of them. And I went, hmm. I said, let me try that. And he says, go ahead. And I didn't realize at that point how incredibly hard it was. And I said, what if I wanted to do this with other music? And then he explained about time signatures and full time and all that stuff. But I was really interested. And so I had the key to the club because I had to do the electrics. So I would often go to the club when, when no one was there and I would practice. And eventually um, I started to get, you know, some hit New York records and I would start to practice with them. And I started to get better and better. And I finally, you know, you know, this, when you're learning to, 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 to spin vinyl and one day it just clicks, you go, oh, this is how you do it. And then you never mess up another mix. And so I was getting to be good. And they said to me, Brian and Fred said, hey, you're getting pretty good. Why don't we give you one of our off nights and you can play to, you know, a few people that come in. I said, okay. So they gave me a Wednesday night. And, you know, there were like eight people in the club and I was playing basically WBLS music. 
And they all liked it and started to tell people at Binghamton, at, at SUNY Binghamton, that there's some DJ at the Power and Life Company that's playing Kip R&B and soul music. And, you know, we should go listen to him. And my night got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became the biggest night of the week. And um, I remember we, went, we took trips down to Downstairs Records and I would stuff all the money I had in my pocket. And I would talk, I, the first person I ever met at Downstairs Records was Yvonne Turner. And I said, look, I'm an up and coming DJ. I'm just learning. I said, can you recommend like, you know, 20 or 30 records that I could buy that could get me, you know, through a night. And she did. And I kept going down there every couple of weeks and getting more and more and more stuff. And so Fred and Brian were still playing, you know, Stephanie Mills and Diana Ross and things like that. And I was playing, you know, what would become classic Better Days music. And eventually, on Wednesday night, the line outside to get in was all people of color. And they had, there was no other club in Binghamton that they could go to. Can I ask you what Yvonne would have given you at that time? As, as maybe one or two of the records you remember going, wow, this is, I never heard this, but this is incredible. Um, we're talking around 1979, 1980. I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't come to New York till 1981. So uh, I'm going to say things like, uh, she had a she had a test pressing of salsa rhapsody. She says, "Play this; it'll go over really well." It was just one side. I still have it somewhere. Um, it was much more stuff on West End, stuff on Prelude, Billy Nichols, uh, things like that. And it was so different than what Fred and Brian was playing that people were starting to request records from them that they didn't have. They were in my pile, which was over on the side. And finally, that's Bruce music. That's not our music. That's, 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 that's weird that's stuff. Wednesday nights. We don't play that. You know, I remember. I remember one of the two records I had. One was One Nation Under a Groove, the twelve inch. Oh, great record. And what was the other one? Oh, I forget. I'll remember it at some point. Anyway, I would play this stuff, and Brian and 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 Fred were like, "Oh, this stuff is terrible." I said, "Look, you got nothing to talk about." <laughs> I said, I just heard that Amont record the other day, and I, I had to walk out of the club because it was giving me a headache. And eventually, my night became one of became the biggest night of the week. And so they started to put me on the weekends. And so my Saturday night became big. And then one day, um, some visitors came from Syracuse. And you could tell there were club people. They were all dressed, you know, and there was some woman there with her hair up vertical and stuff like that. And um, finally, I went up to the, you know, I went up to them and I, I said, "Hi, I'm Bruce. Nice to meet you." And they introduced themselves and something. And then eventually, the girl who was a DJ, uh, she came to the club a few times, and she came up into the booth one day. And she says, is the DJ allowed to dance? And I go, you don't want to see me dance. I, I make Elaine Bennis look like, uh, you know, Barishnikov. I said, trust me, I'm like 100 pounds of jelly in a condom. Anyway, we became friendly, and that woman's name was Leslie Doyle. 
And Leslie and I became good friends. Eventually, she offered me a guest spot. She was playing at Club 37 in Syracuse. Interestingly, it was owned by a guy named Gene Danina, who eventually he eventually came down and bought 1018. Right. And the first time I came in, he said, Bruce, what are you doing here? I said, I live here now. And um, so Gene... We got friendly. I did a guest spot up there. I was terrified. Leslie's boyfriend at the time was doing the lights, giving me the evil eye. But eventually she broke up with him and Leslie and I started going out. And she said, look, let's, let's, let's blow this joint. Let's go to New York. So I said, okay. Now she was the experienced DJ. She had many years of playing and I was a real newbie. So I thought that we would go down there and I would, you know, find a job like I had before doing electrical work. And she made her a, a little demo tape and had a professional masters and stuff like that. And she was having trouble getting a job. Meanwhile, I went to Vaughn and I went to all of the clubs in New York. I saw Francois at New York, New York. I went to studio. I went to the Red Parrot. I went to all these different, I went to, I think it was, I went to Copa. And I said, you're playing the same music that I hate. Where can I? And I said to Yvonne, I said, where can I go and hear some decent music? She said, walk up to, 50, to 49th Street, make a right, walk until you see a sign that says Better Days. She said, there's a DJ up there named T. Scott, and he is absolutely amazing. And so here I am, straight white boy, walking into Better Days. And I remember saying to, to Leslie, I said, I don't know, this looks kind of shady. She says, I'm going to worry about it. So we went in, and T was absolutely as good as, as everybody oh said he was. He was so, he so, was paint, so, paint picture, so paint the picture of New York at that time, city, because it ain't Disney World in those days. No, it wasn't. No, no. In fact, the first street from Better Days was a parking lot. The, the, the Worldwide Center hadn't been built yet. And it used to be the old Madison Square Garden. When they tore it down, they just tore it down to ground level and paved over the entire city block. So it was a very shady place. And Better Days was a very shady club. And But T. Scott played there, and T was amazing. And so I hung out there. And usually, Leslie and I were pretty much the only white people in there and the only straight people in there. But we didn't care. T was great. And just by listening to him, I realized what I had been wrong and what I needed to do. And what I had been doing wrong is concentrating on the records instead of learning to read a crowd. And I watched how T did that. I went in and introduced myself, and he could not have been nicer. Biggest smile in the world, really friendly, hang out here, watch what I'm doing, so on and so forth. And T was really, really good. So I used to go there. That was my regular club. And one day I saw the owner who basically spoke like Jimmy Cagney. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it that way. He was, he was about my height. He was like five feet tall. And every, a couple of times during the night, he would come out of the locked office with a coffee can in his right hand and a drawn 38 revolver in his left hand. And he would walk to the front door. He would collect the money. And then he walked back to the office. So I waited for them. So I went there one night and T wasn't playing. Someone else was. And he was good, but he wasn't T. And so I walked right up to him. I didn't care. 
And I said, are you the owner? And he raises his gun. I said, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I just want to ask you a question. He says, yeah, what do you want to know? I said, this isn't he playing. He says, no. Nah. He says, uh, it's Derek Davidson. And I said, oh, he's really good. And he says, you think he's better? I said, yeah, I think he's great. And he said, are you a DJ? I said, I'm, yes, I am. I am, you know, I've been a DJ for a year or two, and I'm getting better and better. He says, you're looking for a job? I said, oh, you want to replace T for one night, you know, a slow night or something like that. And he says, come in on uh, Monday and audition for me. Okay. And so I grabbed a couple of records that I had, and I at that point, I don't know where I got it. I had a test pressing of burning up by imagination. It was months from coming out, but I had it. And T played on Thorne's turntables, which I could not handle. I, I had started on 5100 Technics, and then we got 1200s. Then we got Richard Long to take the ports out, and I was used to that. And I couldn't deal with the suspension on, on the Thorns, but I managed to play, you know, with the owner whose name is either Dave Fisher or Al Roth, we're not sure yet. And this is everybody who's ever worked there. We're not sure what it's really I thought it was Al Roth. I always thought he yes, was Al Roth. Everybody was introduced to him as Al Roth. One day, I, I want to say in 1986, he came up to me and said, yeah, you know that Al Roth guy? He's gone. He's done. My name's Dave Fisher. I said, your name? You changed your name? He says, no, I've always been Dave Fisher. I go, what are you talking about? There was some tax thing going on. I figured it had to be something with taxes. No, it is. I it had to be something with taxes or, or the police or something like that. Did he have the John Smith Social Security card? Like the ones that go gambling, they put they, they give you yeah, the John yeah. Smith one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I was like, it's very hard to change your, someone's name that you've known for years. And I kept calling him Al by mistake. And he goes, Al, that, that fuck's dead. And uh, so um, Dave Fisher and um, uh, I then I, I started, okay, I'm going to go back a bit. I couldn't play on those Thorns turntables. I did my best. I played for about an hour. Dave was in the office the whole time. No one else was listening to me. And uh, finally I said, okay, I guess I'm done. And I walked in. I said, what do you think? He said, you're fantastic. He said, you're fantastic. I, I want to hire you. And I said, oh. I said, for what night? He said, all of them. I just fired that fat fuck T. Why did he fire him? Because T didn't show up till like 11, 12, 30. And he would have one of his assistants play before that. Al didn't like that. He sometimes just wouldn't show up for a night. And Al didn't like that. Now, T could get away with that because he was T. Scott. People were going to come no matter what. He was but, the hottest business in New York in that time. One of the hottest guys. One of the hottest guys. And he fired him right then and there. He fired him. He fired Larry Patterson. And they both came. They collected their records. And they said, eh, you'll be here a week. He says, don't get too comfortable. And I went, okay. So I borrowed a pair of, uh, I, I was going to play the first night on Wednesday. And I borrowed a pair of 5100s from somebody. It took out T's Thorns and played on 5100s. And when people came in and saw a short white boy in the booth instead of T, they kind of stood there with their arms like this 
And I had a row of like 300 people just looking at me. And I was apparently, I found out later, playing the wrong records. And to this day, two people to, with, to whom I can associate my success in better days were Cynthia Cherry and David Steele. They were regulars there. And they came up. I remember when I first walked up on Wednesday night, there were people already in the club. And there was a step up to the dance floor, and I didn't remember it. And so I did a complete face plant in front of them. My records went everywhere. And Cynthia and David helped me pick them up and, and, and get into the booths and stuff like that. And uh, so I started playing. And at the end of the night, you know, nobody would dance. Nobody would leave the bar area. And I kept playing as best I could. And um, at the end of the night... They came up to me and said, uh, okay, you're actually a good DJ, but you're playing the wrong records. He said, you're playing records that would go well in a, a straight black club, uh, down under a Bentley, something like that. He says, you don't play Kashif records with vocals. You don't play work that sucker to death. You don't play, you know, One Nation Under a Groove twice. You don't, I said, it's one of the only records I have. And he, they said, look, You've got to go to, to Yvonne and tell her that you're now playing here and let her help you 